Hi, my name is Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Hey, what's up, pilots? This is Nick. I wanted to take a second and talk about the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep book. Now, we don't have a ton of reviews yet on Amazon, but a lot of people have gotten it, and we have a lot of good feedback from it. And the reason why is because it blows out all those other test prep books out of the water, right? If you've gotten a test prep book before, it's got a bunch of FA written test questions. It's good for that. It's good for that rote memorization, practicing those test problems and stuff. But if you want to learn beyond that, it might have some bullet point summaries of some of the subjects. It might tell you some tips on multiple choice test strategies, but that's about it, right? So what if you want to learn this stuff at a fundamental level? What if you want to go deeper on any of these topics because you're just not getting these topics? And the reason I made this is because we don't have anything physical. And I myself am someone who really likes to study with something physical in my hands. I like to take it with me to the beach, to the park, when I'm traveling, whatever. So I wanted to make a book unlike any of the other books. So that's what I did with the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep. So how is it different? Well, it's got all those test questions just like the other books. It covers every single subject just like the other books, but it breaks things down and explains all the concepts in simple English. And then you add in diagrams and visual aids that those books do not have. And then you also add in QR codes. You know, those little QR codes that you scan to bring up a menu that came around during COVID. So yeah, you can do that with your mobile device, your iPad, whatever, and it'll bring up a video lesson on what you're watching. We also have a bunch of QR codes in there for free downloads, as well as free practice tests that come with the book. So it's on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's only 37 dollars and it's got literally everything you guys that's why it's the ultimate test prep book it's the best bet you can get for one single book when you're studying for your private pilot test so check it out Hello and welcome to the Audio Ground School podcast by Part-Time Pilot my name is Nick Smith and I am your host and creator of Part-Time Pilot so today we're going to continue on with section 12 of the online ground school and section 12, we did lesson one, which is procedure for plotting your course. It was kind of an overview of the procedure I go through and things I think about when I'm plotting my course. Today, we're going to start getting into the nitty gritty of what information you'll need, actually how you choose your checkpoints and altitudes. We might get into distances between checkpoints, but I think because that's got some calculation stuff and some examples, we'll save that for the next one. Now, if you've been listening for the last few episodes, I started a couple new segments that I think will add value for you guys out there listening. Now, if you don't want to listen to these, you can skip them. One of the things is 
I guess it helps us out when you guys leave us a review. Now on Spotify, you can only do like, you know, a number of stars. I think it was one through five stars. So you can still rate us, but you can't leave a review, at least the last time I checked. On Apple Podcasts, you can though. And so what we're doing is if you leave us a review, I am going to read it here on the podcast. And we just crossed over 135,000 downloads total on the podcast, which is awesome. People are really loving the free ground school content that we deliver. So if you want to you know, have a bunch of people hear your uh, review, then leave it on Apple Podcasts. We would really, really appreciate it. It really helps us get seen and noticed. And the more we get seen and noticed, the more things we can do, like more scholarships and more connections with you know, discounts and things like that, all to help you guys, you know, save money and be able to become a pilot. So today I have two reviews that I want to read. First one's short and sweet. It says five stars, super helpful, best online ground school. And now you can listen to it on your phone. So that is very, very simple. That was by Neptune. So thank you, Neptune. Now we have another one that we just got this week. It was by D now three exclamation points. It's five star awesome in all caps for VFR students. Highly recommended for students learning for their private pilot license. I still re-listen to these to stay sharp on certain topics. So thank you D-Now and thank you to Neptune. So again, if you want to get yours read off, go ahead and leave a review and we'll read it off here on the podcast. Now, the second sort of new segment that we've been doing is we've been doing sort of some listener mail, some questions that you guys may want answered and have a detailed explanation on the podcast. So the way you can submit these questions are a few ways. You can ask them in our Facebook study group. Just search, you know, part-time pilot online ground school study group. Or you can send us an email at team at parttimepilot.com and just say, I have a question for the podcast. And we may or may not, we'll, you know, we'll choose the best questions we get and we'll read a couple of them off here on the podcast at the beginning and we'll go over the answers. So without further ado, let's get to this week's listener mail. So the first question we had was in our Facebook study group. Give you an idea of the stuff we talk about in that group. You know, it's all we really make it so that it's only stuff, you know, that's about ground school and flight training specific so that it's you know what you're going to get when you go into the group. We deny any posts that are spammy or anything else like that. It's just for studying and there are no stupid questions whatsoever. And the great part about it is there's a lot of people on there contributing. So when you answer a question, not only will we answer it, but you're also going to get other experienced pilots, student pilots, even some instructors in there who are going to answer it and may have a different perspective. And you'll be able to have five different answers from five different perspectives and maybe just one of them will be the one to click for you. So that's the power of the Facebook study group. So if you're not in it, go ahead and look. It's part of my online ground school study group. So this one wasn't exactly meant for listener mail, but I wanted to read it here as a listener mail question because I think it's a good subject to talk about. So this person said, I'm learning how to use my CX3 flight computer. As I'm going through the ground school, going through, through some of our examples of calculating a pressure altitude, he found that his CX-3 values were different than the ones in the ground school where we use an equation to calculate pressure altitude. Now, what is the difference? Now, the differences were pretty small. This one is a difference of about six feet. So we have a few ways to calculate pressure. We show you to calculate pressure altitude in ground school, and I'll, I'll get to that. But 
in this example, we were using the equation, the estimated equation method, and that gave us 342 feet, and his CX3 flight computer gave him a value of 336 feet. So, you know, it's little less than 2% off, so it's not a huge value off. Is this a big deal? Should you care about it? So the first thing I want to say is when you're that amount, when you're only six feet off, that is good enough. <laughs> Our altimeters when we're flying and anything like that, they don't have the accuracy to within to less than six feet. Okay, so that's close enough, right? We could have both rounded to 350 feet and been fine and both been right. And even if on the FAA written exam, you get within six feet. My guesses are the FAA is not going to have two answer options in the multiple choice question that are within six feet. So you're still going to be close enough even on the FAA written exam. So that's my first question is that is a negligible error. You know, I wouldn't worry too much about that. But I understand that people want to know why there is a difference. Why is it a different value from the CX3 flight computer than when we use our equation? The CX3 flight computer must not be using that equation, right? And that is probably true. Now, I don't have the code of the CX3 flight computer, but I am guessing that they use a lookup table similar to figure seven from the Airman testing supplement, the figures that you will use on the FA written exam. Now, figure seven, I believe it's figure seven. It has a density altitude chart. And then on the side, it has a table for pressure altitude correction. Now, so depending on what pressure setting you have for that day, your pressure altitude is gonna change by a specific value. Now that is a table. And then what the CX3 flight computer does is when you tell it the altimeter setting, right? Like 29.82 inches of mercury, for example, it looks for that in the table. And if it's not specifically in the table, then it'll interpolate between two values in the table to give you the pressure altitude. Now we show you how to do that using figure seven because you're gonna have that figure on the FA written exam. And we show you how to do that. You know, look up the table, find the pressure altitude, correction factor, and then correct for pressure altitude. We even show you how to interpolate. But by the way, the FA written is getting away from interpolation questions on the test. You still need to know how to interpolate for your check ride and cross-country flight planning, and it's a valuable skill to know. But FA written, you won't have to be doing interpolations. Anyways, we show you how to do that. We also show you a quicker method, and that's this equation method. But the equation is just a estimation, and that is where the difference comes in, the difference of six feet in this example. Because the, the equation says it's the elevation plus... 1,000 times the quantity of the standard pressure setting, 29.92, minus the actual pressure setting. So we take, in this example, if we have 29.82, we do 29.92 minus 28.82 to get 0 0.10, times that by 1,000 to get 100, and then we add that to our elevation. So if our elevation was 242 in this example, we add 100 to that to get 342. So that is just an estimation. It's a quick estimation that I like to use because I'm more of a math guy. And so when I'm flying, I just have that equation memorized or I have it written in my kneeboard and I just punch in those numbers on my calculator to get that pressure altitude. You can do the same thing on your CX3 flight computer if you have a electronic flight computer, but just know that it's gonna give a slightly different value because it's using a lookup table, which is probably more accurate, a little bit more accurate, but the difference is very, very negligible. You know, six feet, again, is less than 2% error. So it's a very negligible error, but that is the reason why those two values are different. The equation is an estimation, but it's a good enough estimation to get your questions right on the FA written exam and get you the right pressure altitudes for cross-country planning. But if you want to go be even more 
you know, accurate, you can do the lookup tables if you want to do that. All right. So that was the first listener mail question. Let's get to the second question that I want to cover. All right. This was a good one because I love learning about new mnemonic devices that I can put into the course for our students. So this was a great question. I love this question. They said, I've got the airspaces down. I seem to have a hard time remembering the transponder and speed limit requirements. Do you have any mnemonics or ways to remember those? Now, I was unaware of any mnemonics for those. But like I said, the power of that Facebook group and all these different perspectives, we got a great answer from, I'm going to call them out, Wesley. Wesley said, for transponder, I've heard people use hijack, I can't hear you. I'm having an emergency. Now, this is to help remember the transponder codes that you don't want to use unless you're in an emergency, right? That's 7,500, 7,600, or 7,700. So hijack, if you're getting hijacked, that you input the transponder code 7,500. If you have no comms, if you lose comms, you put in 7,600. So hijack, I can't hear you. So hijack means hijacked. Can't hear you means no comms. And then having an emergency, that just means having an emergency. So the general emergency code is 7700. So hijack, I can't hear you, I'm having an emergency. Those go in line if you just then remember they start at 7500, 7600, 7700. So hijack 7500, can't hear you, no comms, 7600, having an emergency, 7700. For speed limits, I don't have a mnemonic device to remember speed limits and we didn't get any students yet that answered or any anyone else that answered for a mnemonic device so i want to ask it here on the podcast if anyone knows you know the speed limits for you know when you're underneath class bravo when you're in class bravo when you're in class charlie you know all those different speed limits that we went over you know way back 10 20 episodes ago so if anyone out there has a good mnemonic to remember the speed limits, I know most of them are 250 or 200 knots, but if anyone has a good mnemonic, send us an email at team at parttimepilot.com or go to the Facebook study group and post it in there. It would be very, very valuable to more students. So thank you. All right, so those have been the listener mail questions for this week. Without further ado, let's get into the lessons and continue on with our cross-country planning if you're not in the online ground school. Again, I highly recommend you do that because when you do, you have the written lessons, the visual aids, the mnemonic devices, the examples we have in there, and then you can supplement you know, on your drive to work or whatever this audio podcast, and then you can also get watch the video when you get home and then do the quiz. So all of that together makes a very, very powerful, full encompassing learning tool. So I highly recommend you check out the online ground school if you're not in it so you can follow along. Okay, so we're on section 12, cross-country planning, lesson two, which is on what information do you need? Let's get into it. So now, let's determine the information we need for our flight. The actual FAA requirement is all available information. Well, before there was the internet, this verbiage made sense. But nowadays, these words aren't very helpful. So it depends on you, the PIC. What information can you prepare yourself with and take with you on your cross-country that will help keep you safe and reach your destination. This depends on where we are going, right? Obviously, if you are just practicing landings in the pattern at your home airport in VFR conditions, then you'll only need minimal information. But if you plan to leave your home airport or plan to fly in IFR conditions, then you obviously, we, as VFR private pilots, we cannot do that. But let's just say, if you do that, then you're required to have much, much more information. The common minimum used by most pilots goes as follows, and it uses the mnemonic device WCRAFT. 
W-K-R-A-F-T, which stands for weather, known delays, that's the K, runway lengths, that's the R, alternate airports, that's the A, fuel required, that's the F, and takeoff and landing distances, that's the T. So weather reports and forecast, the W, you want weather reports and forecasts in route. So required for IFR flights or flights outside the vicinity of your home airport, which would be a cross-country flight. Known traffic delays, that's the K. So known traffic delays of which the pilot in command has been advised by ATC in route, required again for IFR flights or flights outside the vicinity of your home airport. So again, a cross-country flight. These generally come in the form of TFRs and NOTAMs. Runway lengths, that's the R. Runway lengths at airports of intended use required for all flights. Alternate airports or routes. So that's the A. Alternate airports or routes available if planned flight can't be completed. This is required for IFR flights or flights outside the vicinity of your home airport. So again, cross-country flights. Fuel requirements. That's the F. Fuel requirements to your first destination required for IFR flights or again, you guessed it, flights outside the vicinity of your home airport. Takeoff and landing distances, that's the T. So takeoff and landing distance information that incorporates data from the flight manual plus any info that may negatively affect aircraft performance such as airport elevation, runway surface, runway slope, gross weight, wind, temperatures, and obstacles. This is required for all flights. What do I do? I gather everything I need for a flight on my computer and save it into a file folder for that particular flight and below here in the online ground school lesson i have a snapshot of all the things in my file in my folder that i print off and take with me in a notebook when on a cross-country flight now i started doing this when i was preparing for my check ride and then i have continued to do this now why would i want all this information well i just like to have you know i i have four flight i have my ipad you know you can call 1-800 weather brief you can get a weather briefing and get all this information, you know, they're going to give you the TFRs, the NOTAMs, the, you know, whatever information you can ask for. But I like to have a hard copy. That's why I print it off. I like to have a hard copy of all this stuff just to be safe. Again, I've said this many times. I like to do every single thing I can to prepare and be safe for my flight. There's too many general aviation accidents out there. I don't want to be one of those statistics. So I take the extra effort and do these things. So what are what's in the snapshot for those listening who cannot see a snapshot of my file folder? So we have, I'm going to go start from the, this is in no particular order. It's I think it's just alphabetical. So best power cruise. I have my best power cruise chart from one airport to the other. And then I have the best power cruise on the way back. So I have the red lines drawn on that. I, you know, I took a scan of that and I printed that off. So my cruise calculation. Then I have... Ceiling and visibility forecast, a cloud forecast. So this is using the aviationweather.gov graphical forecast tool, the GFA tool. So I have ceiling and visibility map for, you know, of my route, a snapshot of that. I have a cloud forecast of that route, you know, during the time. These are all during the times of my flight. I have ice at 9,000 feet forecast. Let's see here. I have surface prognosis chart. I have turbulence at 3,000, 6,000, and 9,000 feet, and then I have wind at 3,000, 6,000, and 9,000 feet, all those snapshots of the map. Then I have fuel time and distance calculation, again, for, you know, my route there, and then I have a scan of that calculation on my, you know, my chart from my POH, and then I have a fuel time distance calculation from my route back. 
I have my an Excel version of my Navlog. So I use I like to use Excel. I have some pre-made calculations in Excel. And then this file, I actually, if you're in the online ground school or our check ride prep course, this is in your bonus course, your bonus downloads course. You can get that. I also have a PDF version or you can just print straight from the Excel version. That Navlog, I have an aerial view of my landing airport and my takeoff airport. So just like a Google Maps aerial view. I have a local area forecast for both airports. And this is using one of my favorite graphs, uh, aviationweather.gov. You can go to local area forecast. You can click on the map in exact location. It'll find the close, it'll interpolate the closest weather information for you and it'll show you a chart. So it'll show you like all these things like temperature, winds, ceiling, visibility, rain chances, all in through time for like 36 or 48 hours. And then it shows like a, a line. It's like a line chart for those. So that's really valuable. That's just a snapshot of like at any time what, what we expect the con- all the conditions to be. I have the AFDs, you know, the chart supplements for all, you know, my takeoff airport, my landing airport, and any alternate airports that I might need. So airports along the route that I might need if any emergency, I need to divert to those airports. I have those chart supplements. Again, these are on ForeFlight, but what happens if you lose ForeFlight? I have hard copies of these. I have my landing distance calculations. You know, I scan those from my landing distance chart for my POH for both again, both airports. I have a snapshot of my sectional chart, you know, with my route on it. I have low level significant weather, precipitation forecast, a surface prognosis, I think we talked about that, takeoff distance calculation charts, TFR and NOTAMs for my area listed. I have that, you know, snapshot. And then finally, winds aloft. So that's, that's a lot of stuff. And I know printing costs have gone up, but if you're gonna spend, you know, $600 on a cross country flight or even more, you know, six hundred to thousand dollars. What's it? What's you know, fifteen to twenty bucks to print this stuff off? If you know, God forbid, you need it, and you have these hard copies. So go in and check this list of stuff that I have in here. And then one last thing I want to talk about that's not here in the lesson, but these hard copies. I highly recommend you make these hard copies. You print them off for your check ride because the examiner, when you're going over your cross country plan, can ask you. You know, let's say. He's gonna say, okay, like what altitude did you climb to after you leave your airport? You know, they're gonna go through your plan and, and what altitude did you climb to for your cruise altitude? You know, how long did that take? How much fuel did you burn there? Or something like that, right? And then they're gonna be like, okay, how did you how did you get those numbers? And you could just pull up, right, your fuel time distance to climb chart that you printed off and just be like, here's what I did right here. I uh, used my chart from the POH, fuel time distance to climb from here to here. You just show them right there. If they say, okay, well, your winds at cruise uh, that you have here in your navlog, where did you get those? Well, I printed off my winds aloft. You can see the forecasted time is the time of our expected flight. And then I have here circled, you know, our area and the altitude that we expect to fly for cruise. And these are the winds aloft. You should have an answer for every single thing that you calculated how you got it. So any information that you use to make a calculation, you should print that off and have it with you on your check ride. It's just gonna make your life easier. And the easier you can make the oral part of your check ride and the more prepared you are for that, the less time it's going to take 
the less tired mentally you're gonna be by the time you get to your practical flight. So one of the biggest issues with people failing their check ride is they struggle on the oral. It mentally taxes them, it stresses them out, and we all know, studies have shown, that when you're stressed out, both your cognitive ability and your physical abilities drop dramatically. So you're just setting yourself up for failure on your practical flight test when you struggle on the oral test. So things like this, planning ahead, printing that all off, having it all prepared is going to help make that smoother. It's going to show the examiner, wow, they're really prepared. They're going to start feeling more confident in your abilities. They might not ask you as many questions because they're like, well, what's the point? They got everything here, right? And it's going to go quicker and easier for you. Okay, so that is lesson two. Let's move on to lesson three of this section, which is on choosing checkpoints and altitudes. All right, so now the fun begins. You have your route drawn and your checkpoints selected, right? We drew a straight line from our departure airport to our destination airport in the last episode. And then we worked our way and we avoided terrain, obstacles, maybe some airspace that we don't wanna fly into. And then we chose some, some checkpoints along the way, some visual checkpoints. So you will now want, need to determine several things for each leg of your flight, starting with the distance and course to each of your checkpoints. And that would be your true course, and we'll get to that. Using a worksheet is very beneficial if not required for cross-country planning, and now is the time to get those out. And again, I mentioned in your bonus downloads course, whether you have our online ground school or a checkride prep course, you have our Excel version of our nav logs and our PDF version of our nav logs. I recommend the Excel one, so you can kind of mess around with it a little bit. If you're not familiar with Excel or whatever, you can just print off the PDF run and write on that, or you can make your own. So start by writing a descriptive name for each checkpoint, starting with the airport you'll be taking off from and ending with the airport you'll land at. So for example, if we're taking off from Gillespie Field in San Diego, that you know that's where I trained at, that is K-S-E-E, K-C. So I would put K-C for my first, in my first line. And then my last line would be, you know, wherever I land, let's say that's Apple Valley, K-A-P-V, I would put K-A-P-V at the end. And then I would fill in each checkpoint along the way for all the other lines. Note that the elevation of the airport you plan to take off from in terms of pressure altitude in your worksheet. So you wanna note that elevation for departure airport and your landing airport, and you wanna do it in terms of a pressure altitude because you're gonna need this. The elevation that is listed for an airport on a chart is given in MSL and assuming a perfectly standard atmospheric day. Let's say, I think KC is like 387, three something elevation in MSL. That's on a standard day. So we need, if it's not standard, we have to convert that to a pressure altitude. Again, using the pressure altitude equation or that chart or our electronic flight computer or our manual E6B. But our aircraft performance changes based on atmospheric conditions. So that's why we want to convert those elevations to pressure altitudes in our calculations. So we're going to need that. To convert our pressure, our elevation to a pressure altitude, we will need to get the altimeter setting for the airport. This can be challenging to do so in advance because a lot of terminal area forecasts do not forecast their altimeter setting. So in like a TAF, you usually don't see an altimeter setting. Sometimes you do at bigger airports, but not always. However, we can make assumptions that the altimeter setting will be similar to either the previous day's setting at the time you plan to take off, only if there is no new weather fronts that have come to the airport. So if there is a pressure system that has come in in the last day, then 
you know, higher low pressure system, then that's obviously going to change that. You can't do that. But if the temperature and the weather is similar as the day before and there's no new pressure systems coming in, we can look, find those on surface prognosis charts. Then you could assume that it's going to be similar to the day before at around the same time. Again, as long as the temperature is about the same and there's no pressure systems. You can also use nearby airports, right? So you let's say, for example, Gillespie Field, we can maybe look at a bigger airport around that. Maybe we can look at K San Diego. That one might not be the best because if you're familiar with San Diego, there's a lot of microclimates. K San Diego is right on the water. And then KC is about five, six miles or 10, mile, 10 to 15 miles east. And it gets a lot hotter. So that might not be the best because the weather is going to change. But if you can find a bigger airport, look at their TAF, they might have a pressure altitude forecast. You can also look in some different sources other than aviationweather.gov to get that estimation of the altimeter setting. Once you've found your expected altimeter setting, we can use, you know, again, a couple ways that we mentioned. You can use your electronic flight computer. You can use your manual E6B. You can use the, you know, a lookup chart or a lookup table like the one on figure seven from the Airman testing supplement to or you can use this equation, which is again an estimation, but it's a pretty accurate estimation to calculate the pressure altitude. So that's what I like to use as this equation. It says pressure altitude equals elevation plus 1000 times the quantity of 29.92 minus X, where X is our actual expected altimeter setting. So we have the standard altimeter setting, 29.92 minus altimeter setting, whatever that is, times 1000 plus the elevation. I have a note here, this equation is efficient and accurate enough for use on cross-country planning, but I do say that when, and I think it is accurate enough as well to take the FAA written, but I would recommend using the conversion table on FAA figure eight. I've been saying figure seven, it might be figure eight, I'm so sorry, to convert to your pressure altitude. If you're taking the FAA written, you should use the figure provided for the FAA written. That just makes sense, right? But I know I've tried it many times, this equation will get you pretty dang close. But it will give you a slightly different result and because the exam's multiple choice options can be very close together, it is important that you use the figure that they provide. This kind of saving my butt, you know, I like to use this, but the safe thing to do on the affair written exam is to use that figure in that table. I think this equation will work. You can maybe use it to check your work right? Make sure it's close, but use that figure. All right, this equation is simply finding the difference in inches of mercury expected in the atmosphere and converting that to feet of altitude and then adding that to your elevation. In the equation, 29.92 is the standard day pressure setting in inches of mercury. X, as we mentioned, is an input equal to the actual pressure setting that we found for the day of your flight. Elevation is the elevation in the airport in feet MSL. So for example, if you get a forecasted pressure setting for your flight to be 30.05 inches of mercury at the airport you're taking off from that has an elevation of 500 feet above mean sea level, then your pressure altitude would be 500 plus 1000 times the quantity 29.92 minus 30.05. So first we do what's in the parentheses. So 29.92 minus 30.05, that's gonna give us a negative number of negative 0.13. And then if we multiply that by a thousand, so negative 0.13 times a thousand, we get negative 130. And if we add negative 130 to 500, we get 370. So because our actual altitude is higher, our actual pressure setting, sorry, is higher, we get our pressure altitude is lower than 
the pressure altitude on standard day. So, which is the mean sea level of 500 feet. It's lower than that at 370 feet. So that is what we would use the pressure altitude. That's our starting altitude in our cross country plan. So if we're taking off from KC, like an airport, whatever airport we're taking off from, we would jot down this pressure altitude as our starting altitude. So we wanna know the starting location and the starting altitude to begin our calculations. Your calculations for aircraft climb and descent performance require airport elevations to be converted to pressure altitudes. So that's why we do this. We don't put in the elevation in terms of MSL, we put it in terms of pressure altitude. For your ending altitude at your last checkpoint, your landing airport, you wanna use the expected traffic pattern altitude. So we don't wanna use the elevation because we're not going to calculate a descent all the way down to the ground, we're going to calculate our descent from cruise altitude down to the traffic pattern elevation. And then we'll we'll get into the traffic pattern and then land. Okay, now if we did it the other way, it's probably going to get us, you know, it's not gonna change our results too much if we were to calculate our descent from cruise all the way to our landing elevation but I like to do it down to the traffic pattern altitude and then have a separate column. We may add time or fuel if we are in that traffic pattern longer. But once you're in that traffic pattern, I sort of consider you to be there, right? Like you, you made it and now we just gotta get down. So we wanna use the traffic pattern altitude and that can be found in the AFD chart supplement under your landing airport's ICAO code and it's written as an above ground level. If it's not listed, the FA default is 1,000 feet. So let's say our landing airport is KAPV. We would look that up in the chart supplement. We'd look for the TPA or traffic pattern altitude. If we don't see it, then we know it's the FA default of 1,000 feet AGL but it might list something else. Another common one is like 1,200 feet. If there's some terrain around there or obstacles around, they might bump up a couple hundred more feet. So for example, if the TPA traffic pattern altitude is 1,200 feet above ground and the elevation at the landing airport is 400 feet, then your TPA in terms of true altitude, because you would have 400 feet elevation in MSL, which is a true altitude, plus 1,200 feet above that, above ground, would equal 1,600 feet. Convert this value to a pressure altitude and then write it in your altitude column for your final landing airport checkpoint. Again, we want that in a pressure altitude as well because when we calculate our descent performance, we're gonna do a descent from a pressure altitude at cruise to a pressure altitude. That is the next step that we wanna do for our last airport. So now we have the altitudes at the beginning of our flight and the altitudes at the end of our flight with our checkpoints in between. All right, so we have time to do the next lesson, lesson four, which is distances between checkpoints. So let's get into lesson. It's a bit of a short one, and let's talk about how to measure the distances. So again, we started with that straight line course in last episode, and then we looked for obstacles, terrain, airspaces, stuff like that to avoid. And then we found checkpoints, visual checkpoints that we, you know, that had, that were easily to find outside of our window while we're flying, easy to find on the sectional chart, had a VOR radial we could cross, and we're about 20 to 30 miles maximum from the last checkpoint. We wrote those down between our takeoff airport and our landing airport. Then in the last lesson, we just added the pressure altitude, the elevation and pressure altitudes of our, basically our starting altitudes and our ending altitude. And then now we're going to come up with the distances for each leg of our flight. So the distance from, you know, our starting airport to our first checkpoint, from our first checkpoint to our second checkpoint and so on. So using your iPad and flight planning software or your plotter tool and chart, 
to determine the distance between each of your checkpoints. Now we wanna make sure we are using the correct ruler in terms of chart and distance unit combination on our plotter tool. So I mentioned this before and we put a video in, in the show notes for you guys on how to use that plotter tool, but we're gonna talk about it here again. Most plotters have rulers, scales for sectional charts and nautical miles, sectional charts and statute miles, terminal area charts and nautical miles, and terminal area charts and statute miles. So they have four different scales or rulers marked on the plotter tool. And again, I'll put it in the show notes, but we recommend the, the plotter tool that has the spinning wheel. And so we'll put that in the show notes so you can see what we're talking about. And we have an image here of an example of how to use distance, how to you know find the distance using the correct scale here in this lesson. So you don't want to make the mistake of using the ruler for terminal area chart slash statute miles when you are determining distances on a sectional chart and you want those distances in nautical miles, right? When we're determining distances, we want to use nautical miles. Statute miles are used for things like weather and visibility because statute miles are in a straight line. They're a straight line distance. Nautical miles take into effect the curvature of the earth. So we want to use nautical miles. So we want to look for the scale or ruler that has nautical miles. And then depending on what chart we're using, whether it's terminal area or sectional chart, we want to use that combination. So let's say we're using a sectional chart. We want to find the scale that says sectional chart nautical miles. And then we want to use that to measure our distances. Again, you don't want to start your cross-country plane with the wrong distances because that's going to screw up everything. You're going to have to redo a lot of work. So don't make this mistake. Fill in your distances between each checkpoint on your worksheet and then add them up cumulatively in the next column to get the total distance at each checkpoint. And by cumulatively, which I can't say, I mean a running total of the distance you will have traveled. For example, if it's five nautical miles to your first checkpoint, you want to put five nautical miles next to that. So let's say we're taking off from KSE. So the distance, and then we're going to have a distance column and then a total distance column. So for our takeoff airport, those values are going to be zero. Okay. Cause we haven't gone anywhere. Then the next row down is going to be our first checkpoint. So let's say that's checkpoint one. So on the row for checkpoint one, we want to say how many miles it took to get there from our starting airport. So let's say that's five nautical miles. We put that in the distance column. Then for total distance column, we would also put five nautical miles because that's our total distance. Then on the next row for checkpoint two, let's say the distance from checkpoint one to checkpoint two is 12 nautical miles. So we would put in the distance column 12 nautical miles because it takes 12 nautical miles to get from checkpoint one to checkpoint two. But then in the total distance column, we would put 17 nautical miles because the total distance we have traveled is the five nautical miles from our starting airport to checkpoint one plus the 12 nautical miles from checkpoint one to checkpoint two. And that's going to continue on as a running total. So then if again, if it took 13 nautical miles to get to checkpoint three, then that total distance value, we'd put 13 in that distance value. And then the total distance value would be 13 plus the 17 from before. So it'd be five plus 12 plus 13. So it'd be, what's that? 30 nautical miles total distance we've traveled. And then you also want to have the distance between each checkpoint that it takes to get to each checkpoint. All right. So here we have an image of how to do that. And also, again, as I mentioned, I'll put it in the show notes, a video of how to use your plotter tool. Essentially, you want to, once you've found the right scale, 
You just want to line up the scale with your route on that straight line. And then you just want to, you can use whole easy numbers or you can use, you know, you can start it at the zero point, the zero dash on the ruler. And you simply just mark, I like to use like a dry erase pen. Let's say we're going from checkpoint one to checkpoint two. You'd put the zero mark on checkpoint one. You would line up your ruler along your route and then you would mark where checkpoint two is. And then you would just simply read off that amount here in this example, we have an amount where we're going from the mark on 20 to the mark on 40. So that difference is 20 nautical miles. So we're measuring a 20 nautical mile leg of flight that we have lined up on that leg of flight. So it's pretty simple, just like using a ruler, right? The things we just want to look out for, are we using the right scale? That's the biggest thing that people get wrong. So we want to make sure we're using the right scale and we're writing down the correct scale, which you know, should be whether you're using a terminal or sectional chart, you want to find that scale, and then you want to use the one with nautical miles. We should now have the distances between each checkpoint all in here, starting with our takeoff airport, then checkpoint one, checkpoint two, so on, all the way to our ending airport. We should have the distances between each of those. We should have the total running distance, you know, the cumulative distance that we've traveled all the way to the end, which will be our total distance traveled, and then we also have our pressure altitudes that are starting, you know, our starting altitude and our ending altitude, which we'll get to why, we, when we'll need that for our calculations. And so far, that's what we got for our cross-country plan. So we have a good start to our cross-country plan. The next thing that I like to do, which I think is very, very important, and the reason it's important is because it could get you, it got me into a lot of trouble redoing these. And if you're like me and you're meticulous with how you plan these cross-country flights, you know they can take quite a long time, you know, a couple hours. And if you do something wrong and have to completely redo it, that is a huge pain in the butt. So one thing that I did wrong a couple times before I was like, finally, this has to stop, I cannot do this, was I would plan a whole flight only to realize that I need to make a fuel stop. I don't have enough fuel, right? Because you calculate fuel at the end using your time and route. How much time it's gonna take to get to each checkpoint, and then we have a fuel consumption rate and then we calculate the fuel consumed during that and we add it all up for each checkpoint, just like a flight, and we get our total fuel consumed. But we can't get all that information. We can't get time and route till we get ground speed. We can't get ground speed till we have true airspeed. Can't get true airspeed until we you know, do these performance charts. All these things, right, have to happen first before we can get to that. But how are we going to know ahead of time if we need to plan in a fuel stop. So the next thing I do is I estimate the fuel that we're gonna need. And I have a pretty good fuel estimation technique that gets us pretty dang close. We're going to eventually calculate a more accurate, realistic, and conservative fuel amount. But this estimation technique is good. It tells us whether or not we're going to need to plan a fuel stop so that we don't do this whole entire cross country plan only to realize we need fuel and have to completely redo it all. So that's the next step. We're gonna cover that in the next episode in lesson five, that's estimate fuel needed. Then we'll get into measuring our courses, right? So we have the distances of each leg of flight. Now we wanna know what course we wanna fly at. And that's gonna be a true course because when we measure it on our charts, we're measuring the true course and we're gonna use our plotter tool to do that. And then maybe if we have time, we'll get into the winds and temperatures that we need to gather for our takeoff, landing, and cruise portions of flight. We can jot that information, jot our winds and temperature information down into our nav log. And from there, we're getting real close to starting to make all these performance calculations. So hang with us. We're going to get through this cross-country planning section. It's important. A lot 
Even though a lot of you know, tools these days will do these things for you, which is great, the FAA still requires you to know it for the written, they still require you to know it for your check ride, and it's a requirement to be a damn good pilot because if these systems fail, you wanna know how these systems come up with these numbers and you wanna be able to know how you can do these numbers yourselves. All right, well, thank you guys for listening so much. And remember, if you have any questions that you want us to read off, send them to team at parttimepilot.com or join our Facebook study group. Just search the Part-Time Pilot study group on Facebook, join that. You can ask a question in there for the podcast that we can read off on the podcast and I'll go into detailed explanation of that question. So send those in and you might get them read off. Also, leaving reviews or ratings really, really help us get seen. Also helps us get seen if you subscribe, you also get notified of new episodes and they kind of automatically download. So if you are offline for a while, it'll already be downloaded on your phone. Like I always forget to download podcasts on my flights. I have my phone set to automatically download the latest couple episodes from my favorite podcast shows so that I always have those no matter what. So that's helpful for you, but also it really helps us if you leave a review, you subscribe, all that stuff. And I might just read your review live on the podcast and it might get heard by thousands and thousands of student pilots out there. So again, anyways, help us out and then we'll read them off in our new segments. And as always, I will see you guys next week with the next episode of the Audio Ground School podcast. Take it easy. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time, everything's great and dandy. But once you get into, you know, bad weather flying or flying at heavy, heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight, 
things get a little more advanced. And when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts, you're gonna hit a wall. You're gonna start to get behind the aircraft. And when this happens, if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're gonna say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're gonna be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead 50, 60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gain is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. When I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic, again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so read. for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons, you can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA check ride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, 
the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.